Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be discussing how Tastry taught a computer, aka AI, how to taste wine. And our guest is Katarina Axelson, CEO and co-founder of Tastry. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Can you please give me and Peter a brief overview of your background? Yeah. So I went to Cal Poly um, a while back and I studied chemistry and took quite a few data science classes, but we're in the Central Coast. Cal Poly University is an engineering school in the Central Coast of California and it's right by Paso and Edna Valley. So it's in the heart of one of the largest wine industries and there's, what, 400-something wineries in a 40-mile radius. So while I was going to school, I was also paying my way through college by working various jobs in the wine industry. I did it all except winemaker. You know, I did the pump overs. I did scale house. I ultimately ended up in the lab. And I was supposed to go and pursue higher education, but during my time in the wine industry, I was given a lot of opportunity in my free time to tinker around and run experiments in the lab. And Tastry came out as one of those experiments. So since then, I took that and then started to collaborate with other very brilliant minds on Tastry and never looked back. So that's what I've been doing since then. And so how long has Tastry been around? Six years, but three and a half, four years of that was, we weren't a business. It was really an R&D project with winemakers, sensory scientists, analytical and flavor chemists and mathematicians. But there was a lot of R&D and millions of dollars, but we officially launched Tastry in December of 2021. Okay. So for those outside of the tagline, what exactly is Tastry and why did you start it? So why did I start it? So it will kind of explain what it is. When I was working in the wine industry, look, any industry you work in long enough, right, you start to kind of see the idiosyncrasies or quirks of that industry. And especially as a young, naive person who who doesn't have a lot of experience yet, I feel like they're easier to identify because you kind of haven't been told what's not possible yet. You know what I mean? So I would go into these meetings where we were making multi-million dollar decisions about how to blend a wine, how to bottle it, how to label it, how to market it, right? And I would hear things like sales and marketing would say, okay, well, the top selling wine last year, who we consider a competitor, had this tropical kind of flavor to it. So what you need to do, winemaker, is make this wine more tropical this year. And then the winemaker would be like, well, I don't know how to make, like, what do you expect me to do? Like, this is chemistry. We're dealing with nature here. You want me to, so I would like hear these like random conversations and then like these multi-million dollar decisions would be made by people sitting in a room and sniffing wine and trying to articulate what they think consumers are going to want. And wine, just like any other CPG product, has an 85% failure rate when launching in the first year. So I thought, okay, maybe there's a way to get multiple people in the wine industry to speak the same language. And what everyone seems to want is visibility on the ever-shifting and evolving consumer preferences. And so I thought, okay, maybe the answer is in the chemistry. But since that question came into my mind and when Tastry started, that was a couple of years. So I'm about to get to what Tastry is, but just so you know, I set out to kind of understand how we as a science understand how consumers perceive flavor. And I ended up meeting with like execs at 
flavor and fragrance companies and IBM and Google Brain, basically what I learned is no one really understands how consumers perceive flavor at all. <laughs> like we're looking at chemistry and we're trying to quantify a compound like benzaldehyde and we're trying to see how many consumers describe the presence of benzaldehyde in this product as tasting like cherry. But that's a, always been a hit or miss and that's a very long story. But the good news is, is I also discovered during this process that how consumers perceive or describe flavors doesn't really have any relationship with whether or not they like a product. When I buy a coffee or a wine, right, I remember that I had a positive experience and I thought it tasted good, but I don't necessarily remember if I had hints of cherry in it. Typical consumer, not talking about the experts in the room, but so I thought, okay, so there's like a big chunk of like insight missing and we should really be focusing a lot of research on predicting how much consumers like certain things. So long story short, Myself and several chemists and professors in AI ended up developing a methodology that would look at chemistry and create an analytical chemistry methodology that would look at products more similar to a palette, unlike a machine does today. So we could break down the flavor matrix of a product using this unique way and then use AI to interpret the interdependencies in that chemistry to start to predict chemical outcomes from a consumer perspective. That's an intuitive, not most accurate way of describing it, but we basically applied AI to an entirely new analytical chemistry methodology. And then we wanted to use that data to guide future business decisions in the wine industry. Today, we have this unique data set of chemistry and a unique data set on consumer preferences. And we work with well, the entire supply chain, winemakers use this data, sales and marketing people use this data, retailers use this data, and soon to be distributors. But everyone's kind of using it really to anticipate what consumers want and how to provide them what they want. That was the short answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So real quick, it's almost like a data profiling of tastes, and you're essentially selling database access to this information, but it's also a moving target? Well, yes, it is a living, breathing database for sure. And yes, you do purchase or obtain access to this data. But I think one key differentiator is, is that this data is actionable. So it's not just about saying things like, oh, the most popular wine in the U.S. had tropical flavor notes, you know, or basic things like that. It's saying, look, this percentage of consumers are going to like your product. And this is the similarity between your product and a competitor's, for example, right? And this is how you get there from a chemistry perspective. This is what you can do to achieve what you want. All right. So you've used AI and machine learning with chemical analysis to break down or deconstruct a wine's flavor. Let's, I think for our listeners, we're going to have to cover these individual pieces, parts so that we're all talking about in the same language. So obviously, because AI and machine learning often used, but they're not interchangeable. So That's maybe we could talk about how this works. So what kind of AI do you use? Let's talk about, and then we can talk about machine learning and scaling, a number of wines you've run through it. Yes. And well, one key distinction is, is we are less interested in flavor and more interested in what flavor matrix consumers would like and what compounds or combinations of compounds in that flavor matrix are going to be deal breakers or very important to a subset of consumers. So like consumers are not very reliable at describing 
flavors, right, or even features or characteristics they like in a wine, but they're very reliable in understanding whether or not they like it. And when it comes to predicting if someone's going to love your product, be a loyal customer and buy it again, that's the important factor. So that's more what we focus on is like what flavor matrix is the best flavor matrix for you, whether or not you're educated enough to describe it. We do use machine learning algorithms on the chemistry. We use so many different things for different parts of the product. I'm almost thinking explaining what we don't do is easier. But what I can say is, is it's most of it is built in-house. So I can't say something like, oh, we're using collaborative filtering or random forest algorithms or something like that. We found when you're looking at data in the world of flavor, it's more complex and requires a different kind of algorithm than the typical off-the-shelf stuff you would find. So there's an AI that looks at the interdependencies of compounds and their concentrations and the ratios of these compounds. There's an AI that, and a, sorry, machine learning algorithm, sorry, I'm a chemist, that connects that data to consumer palettes. And then there's one that creates synthetic data to extrapolate this insight across the United States. So kind of depends on which one we're talking about. And so the, like, you, as you boil it down to, consumers don't always know, like, someone could say cherry and someone could say blueberry and they may, they may be talking about the same compound, but their perception or the vocabulary around that is, is could be greatly off or even just perception of it. But you said they'd know whether they like it or not. So where is that data coming from? Like in terms of like the consumer saying, I like this wine. Yeah. So that's why um, it took, you know, about four years to launch is we had to train our algorithms with data that we acquired ourselves. We couldn't go and scrape consumer ratings from Vivino or something like that. So as we were analyzing thousands and thousands of wines using our unique method, year over year, we were kind of seed baking the chemistry of those wines. But what we were also doing was running double blind tasting panels. We were conducting professional double blind tasting panels, very expensive, something large wineries manually do consistently, right? So we did that, but we had been pouring the wines we had been analyzing the chemistry for. And these consumers would come in, rate the wines, and the focus in the research was on how much they liked or disliked the wine. One unique aspect of that research is, is we measured negative preferences. We are very interested in why consumers dislike something. But the key to kind of scaling this and not having to run tasting panels on 248 million Americans, for example, or 100 million Americans, was as we were doing these tasting trials, the consumers were also answering hundreds of analog questions that were specifically chosen to be analogs to the underlying chemistry. So the vision was, is these consumers would come in, they would taste the wine, and then they would answer questions like, do you like Pellegrino? You know, you've seen whimsical looking quizzes in the market that kind of do this. Do you like black coffee? Do you like licorice? Do you like dark chocolate, right? Well, your preference for foods that have nothing to really do with wine intuitively. And so at the end of the trials, we had these three data sets and we used algorithms and a combination of data science protocols to understand the relationship between how the consumers rated the wine and answered the questions. So we were able to then bypass the requirement to do tasting panels, and all we had to do was have the consumers answer the questions, and then we could understand over 80, 85% of their palate just from 10 to 20 simple questions. Right, using that to predict forward, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's how we trained it, and that's why we were able to then deploy this deceptively whimsical-looking quiz that could 
very reliably predict what wines you're going to like that we have analyzed the chemistry for. And so in terms of the number of wines, or maybe it's wine categories you've analyzed, like to date, like how would you, in terms of like knowing if I'm a winery listening to this, knowing if my winery would benefit by having this data, like how many types of wines or number of total wines have you guys analyzed and run through this kind of model? Yeah, so every year we're analyzing the new vintage of any wine that's come out, but it's tens of thousands, large productions, right? The nationally distributed wines we definitely have in our system. If it's like some small case production, like imported thing that's only available in a few restaurants, I doubt we'll have it. But if you're that winery and you want to be our client, we could obtain that wine and put it into our database. Really, we're just trying to understand like as much of the wine that is accessible to the U.S. wine market today. But over the years, especially the more distributed vintages, we, we now have year over year analysis and it's kind of become like a seed bank year-over-year comparison of what's going on over time. And so in terms of those wines, you're saying vintage over vintage, it's mostly focused, you would say, largely domestic production. You said domestic market, but I'm curious, is it also focused on domestic production? Less imported, basically. Yes. I mean, we do work with some of the largest wineries in Europe, but our exercises are not based off the European wine market. They're based on the U.S. market, yeah. And then the chemical analysis that you guys do, do you guys outsource that to like ETS or do you do it in-house? No, absolutely not. That's our secret sauce. I mean, that's what took millions of dollars and years to develop. You know, commercial labs, they serve a very different purpose from what Tastry does. I mean, we have incredible accuracy and reproducibility and we are TTB certified and we do quantify compounds, but we don't use the same methods to receive that third-party verification. We use an entirely different method. And the reason we had to is because we're not looking at one compound at a time to quantify it for quality control purposes. We're looking at as many compounds as possible in one snapshots in specific ratios to be able to translate that to humans. So machines don't look at chemistry like humans do. So we kind of, we had to... <sighs> I'm trying to like be accurate, but intuitive at the same time. I'm sorry. So we had to figure out a way how to translate that. And that required an entirely different methodology. And it's part of how we monetize is through the analysis using our unique analysis. So if I were to boil it down, ETS is largely testing for specific ratios of specific compounds where you're looking for correlation between specific compounds together. Is that how you would say it? Yeah, we, like I said, we quantify a, a large number of compounds, but all the variables in the chemistry, all the ion counts, it's a bit of a black box when it comes to understanding how you predict the outcome of those interactions in the final product, and that there's some context there. So we're kind of like, like, we have the lab component because we have to acquire the data we need, but that data is used to feed our AI to then work with winemakers and to provide insights. So are you using essentially the same type of equipment, just using it in a different way, or are you using specialized equipment and a bespoke process? Yeah, 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 exactly. The second one, we haven't invented any equipment. We definitely created our own methodology to run on that equipment, and we don't use the software to look at compounds. We had to create our own, but the equipment we did not invent. Got it. So you're using scientific equipment that's out in the market, but you're yeah. processing the data that comes out of it in a different way. Exactly, yeah. Back to the customer taste profile, you did these trials, double-blind trials, you then extrapolate to the 240 million consumers. So that's supposed to be representative of 
all Americans. Is that right? And how do you differentiate between like adults and people who drink wine versus everyone? Yeah. So I know that not all 248 million Americans over the age of 21 are drinking wine. We would like to convert them to be wine drinkers eventually, right? That is kind of part of our mission, part of the wine industry mission, I believe. But the best way to explain this is, is we're predicting if that person were a wine drinker, what would be their cultural food preference and biological palate. So if we were to convert them to a wine drinker, if they took the tastery quiz and we were to recommend them a wine, we are confident they would like a wine even though they've never had a wine before in their entire life. And the way we do that, I think I'm trying to kind of get to the root of the question is, is we have a combination of real and synthetic data in our database that extrapolates what a heat map of the U.S. looks like. So we have real palettes and we have synthetic palettes. And we have over 100,000 real palettes, right, that we've gathered through providing wine recommendations across the U.S. through various clients. Those palettes have zip codes, and we know in those zip codes there are certain migration patterns and purchasing trends and data like that, right? And we have the chemistry on those wines. So what we do is we run a derivation of a Bayesian Ridge, and it will then extrapolate and triangulate what the missing palettes, what the gaps are with the data that we don't have. And a combination of the real and synthetic data of the U.S. market is what gives us 93% accuracy in predicting how consumers would rate a wine. And as you boil down to these specific palettes of people who like it or the matching of the combination in the wine and the consumer palettes, do you have a set of palettes that people end up in or is it? so specific that it's different for all sorts of different people? Yeah, the way we look at it, someone's palette is almost as unique as a fingerprint. Um, even today, uh, last time I looked, uh, the largest co-occurrence of having the same palette as a person with our database is about 13 people. So, so we're very unique. And we found that I know a lot of companies, they'll like put you in a bin, like you're a Pinot drinker or a big, bold red drinker or something like that. We just don't believe that that's valuable. It's kind of boring because I might describe myself as a Pinot drinker because I've had a lot of good Pinots in my life, but I know that the data will tell me that there are Syrahs that I might like, and I might think I hate Zins, but there are Zins on this planet that I would like. So there are a variety of wine styles that would appeal to me, and it's kind of hard to put me as a consumer in a bucket just because I have a limited experience with wines I've tried. So we don't like to put people in buckets. And so then it's just based on the many, many different profiles you have, how many of those overlap with the profile of the wine? Yeah. So you could be very, very specific, right? You could look at, okay, like this particular individual with this particular palette, how are they going to like these wines? And then we could also move backwards and we can aggregate and be like, okay, statistically speaking, right? Like the consumers in South Beach, Florida, what percentage of them are going to like this wine to rate it above four stars, right? And how do, to be zip code oriented, I guess things like demographics of ethnicity, generation or age, food preferences or cultural preferences, how do all those things factor into scaling out the data you collected from a few thousand people to the whole country? Yeah, so it's interesting. There's a cultural component, right? Like, did you grow up eating sushi or burgers and milkshakes? And that definitely influences your palate, and that's captured in the quiz. There's also demographics, but we found that actually what we see is that the differences are quite slight. Like, there's some differences between men and women, and, and, you know, certain ages imply that you would like 
more sophisticated type of wines and things like that. But we feel like the driving influence there isn't your core biological palate, it's marketing. So it's not as powerful of a predictor for us as like what kind of foods you like. So like, for example, people always ask like, okay, well, why is it that women of this age range like Kim Crawford, right? And I will say, well, it's because Kim Crawford marketed really, really well to women and they captured the women that would like Kim Crawford. It's not because all women like Kim Crawford, right? Marketing, yeah. Yeah, it's marketing. It reminds me of this book I read a while ago, the research done by Tim Hennai, who's a master of wine, I don't know if you're familiar, but he says yeah. that like there's a part of it that's physiological, right? Like your taste buds and the concentration of taste buds and that tells you your sensitivity to things like bitter and things like that, which is tannin and wines. But then part of it's psychological too, right? Like you you know totally. this wine it costs two hundred dollars or whatever and so you tell yourself that you like this wine a lot and that it's really good when you drink it, even if physically you don't think that. Yeah, yeah. We actually spoke at the same summit on a panel this year and we we did talk about that exact thing. It was really interesting and I definitely agree. And also what you said about price, that is definitely true. Price is a very good predictor of how much you're going, how well you're going to, how highly rather you're going to rate the wine. It is true. Like the more you pay for it, it seems like the higher you're going to rate it. <laughs> Fortunately, it's predictable. You can predict that. So do you include things like that in your analysis as well? Yeah. So on our insights dashboard, one of the seven sections, there's a section on price. And what we do is we look at the chemistry of your wine, right, against the backdrop of the U the chemistry of the U.S. wine industry, right? And then we will sh say, okay, if you were to sell this wine, if your marketing team could convince people to buy this wine for $30, then we can predict with 93% accuracy that it would receive 4.2 stars, for example, right? And then what usually happens on those graphs is there's a leveling off point where it's like, okay, it doesn't matter how much you charge for the wine, it's the score is not going to go up. So it's kind of like, it's really good for identifying like if the quality of the wine is in range with what's expected for that price point, or if it's like, if it's overpriced or if it's underpriced for the quality and kind of what you can get away with and what will consumers tolerate? And I mean, sort of playing down this path a little bit, how do you see the difference between people who might identify as like a wine collector versus your average American, right? Or your average person? Do you think about that or account for that? Because to the point of story and price and things like that, right? Like a wine collector might be super interested in something that's really scarce or, you know, like unavailable or everyone wants for what, it, even if it doesn't taste good, right? They don't like totally. the taste versus something else. Yeah, I, I, I would say wine, wine collectors are their own unique thing. They know what they want. They know what they like, and they're not necessarily buying wine on what they like, right? Like they have their own way of doing things, their own opinions. Can I identify what they're going to like the most? Yes, we have trained. We have a variety of experience levels that our algorithms were trained on. What's unique about them, I think, is they're just more willing to explore new things. Like the typical consumer is way less willing to risk their money buying something they might not like, right? Like typical consumers want the reassurance that they're going to get something they like for the money they're risking. More experienced drinkers seem to be less sensitive to that. 
And do you differentiate between like the people who don't drink wine versus those that do? Because there's a big percent, I think something like 32% of Americans that don't really drink wine at all. Mm -hmm. We have data that's like the backdrop of the U.S. market potential, right? Like if this product that doesn't exist yet existed and you convince people to buy it, what would happen, right? So it's a very like zoomed out picture. But we also have real palettes that are based on real wine drinkers. So it depends on how you want to slice the data and what you're trying to accomplish. There's a lot of ways to slice the data. So you could include them, include these fictitious palettes or not include them. You can only use real palettes. If you're a wine club, maybe you just use the palettes of your specific consumers because you want to figure out what they like, not the whole U.S. wine market, right? So yeah, it's like, Look, AI is kind of like a genie, right? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? So what are you prompting it with? Yeah. We'll prompt it and put fences around it depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Got to give it context, yeah. So let's talk about how wineries use Tastry or in terms of their production winemaking. I mean, obviously, maybe we could go through a couple examples of different potential sizing of clients. Because when I think about flavor analysis, it can really help wineries improve wines and suggest techniques or things that change or modify if they're going, if they're trying to target a specific, to understand how their wine resonates with certain groups. But like, how would it like, a, I'm assuming like a large winery, commercial winery would get a lot of value where they have mass distribution, but like versus a small kind of like smaller winery that's like more boutique and kind of focused on representing their sense of place or something like that. Like, how would you see those two different size wineries using Tastry? Yeah, yeah, it's true. We do work with 22 of the 25 largest wineries and 30 of the top 100. And there's a lot of publicity about us working with wineries of that size. But we also work with much smaller wineries. And you're right, the way we work with them varies depending on the size of the winery, right? The larger the winery, the more we could implement more pragmatic kind of like applications, we could help the process become more efficient, right? There's a very clear ROI in terms of like time, iterations, materials sometimes, like the AI is really good for solving for that. Smaller winery, the winemaker's the owner. And yet we do solve chemistry problems sometimes with smaller wineries, like we saved an entire production by ameliorating smoke taint, right? That happens to smaller wineries, but smaller wineries are more interested in not necessarily modifying their wine, right, or the uniqueness of their wine. They're more interested in just obtaining more consumers that are going to love their wine. So it's not just about making wine. Tastry is also about finding the consumers that are going to love the wine you already have. Let's keep on that example. So if I'm a small winery, I want to expose more people who will potentially like my wine. How does Tastry help that small winery do that, like specifically? Yeah, so we do plug in the recommender, right, that I described into wine clubs. That's one way. And recently, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about this yet, but we're working with more and more category buyers, like restaurants, via distributors. And what they're doing is, is they're using this tastery data to discover more interesting, smaller wine labels to put on their menus, for example, right? It's a great example. And yeah, it's kind of in the works, but we're helping more niche brands be discovered. And we're encouraging category buyers to carry them by giving them data that shows how much their customer base is going to like it. On the flip side, on those large, those 22 of the 25 largest wineries, in terms of production, what kind of 
changes have wineries made? You don't have to give specific names if you don't want to, in terms of their production based on the data that you've provided them. Yeah. So, yeah, wineries, you know, winemakers especially are quite secretive. Um, but what I can say, typically our clients will be getting about a 44 to 215x ROI. It's kind of crazy, but the form in which that comes varies dramatically from client to client. So one example is I had a client who had to switch from cooperage to adjuncts or to staves, right? Some kind of alternative. And they had to do that because they had to 5X their production. Business told them they had to 5X their production in the next 12 months. And so they're like, okay, well, I don't even know if I can find like the same oak, like we're dealing with nature here. How do I find the same oak profile to increase my production, right? Well, our software catalogs all sorts of providers and vendors. So what we did is we used this tool called computational blending, and we measured their prior vintages wine, identified the oak profile, and then the AI ran simulations and found the best combination of oaks that would match that profile from different vendors, right? Because there wasn't enough of the product yet. So the winemaker said it was the exact match they were looking for. We accomplished that in 48 hours. So, so there's kind of like an example. Another one was, I'll try to give you two more, but they're like, they're very different, right? Mitigating smoke taint. We had a client that had 3,000 tons and $10 million of fruit, and they could not figure out how to ameliorate this in time. They were about to drop the fruit. Fortunately, it was their first week working with us, and they sent us in a sample just to kind of just, oh, what the heck, like, let's see what happens. And in about 24 hours, we came back with the exact recipe. They tried it, and it completely solved the problem, right? So typically, if you were to do that, Right. They would take multiple iterations. In the case of the oak, it could take many, many iterations and several vintages of R&D to come up with a solution. We can do it in 48 hours. Maintaining year-over-year consistency is a really big one with big productions, right? You're dealing with different fruit from different vineyards all over the place, different quality every year, but you want to make sure you have a more consistent product. Our AI is really good at figuring out what ingredients and what batches of wine, where, how to combine them to get the same outcome as last year, things like that. So as a practical example, say I have my Washington State Riesling that was really hot this year versus the previous years is maybe cooler. And if I, it'll give me a recommendation how to get it back into that flavor profile that I know is a, is a slam dunk for what my consumers are looking for year over year. And so you'll make recommendations on acidification or oak usage or something like that to adjust the wine to make sure that I get back into that target profile. Yes, and yes, exactly. And winemakers set the parameters. So, you know, winemakers, that's where we have the most traction right now with Tastry is some of them describe it as kind of like a compass or a co-pilot. So what they will do is they will go in, they will look at their samples of wine and then set the parameters for what they're trying to achieve. The AI will come back, give them the recipe for what they're trying to achieve. And then they take that to the tasting table and pick one of the couple options that we provide them. And then they take it from there. Can you give us some example of what the parameters are that they put in? And Yeah, so you could go on there and you could say, okay, this is last year's vintage. These are the tanks that I'm trying to make for this year's vintage. Can you make it more similar to last year's vintage? Or can you make it more oaky? Or can you make the same consumers that liked last year's vintage like this year's vintage, but the wine will be different, right? Can you make it a competitive $25 Pinot? All the variables that, you know, they would consider in in business. 
of winemaking. Just random question here. So like the Holy Grail is like, how do I make this $20 Central Coast Merlot taste like Petrus, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like, like how far away are we from that? Because that's the AI I'm all about. <laughs> yeah, look, I would say, look, Making better quality wine where I've seen a lot of successful use cases there. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but look, there are limitations with nature, right? Like what I will say is we have discouraged a lot of people from being copycats. People were trying to do that before Tastry and people would come in and they would say, okay, I want to do the Dow Paso Cab and that's what I want my wine to be. But we'll look at their, you know, fruit and it'll be like, look, you can try to do that. Like we can get kind of close, but not really. But why do that when I can show you how you could be like super competitive and have a super amazing wine in a totally different style that consumers are going to love. That's nothing like it, but you just didn't know to try to make it because like it's never existed before so like maybe you should just have the courage to work with the nature and materials that you have to make the best wine you can right like there's a lot of conversations like that got it got to use your raw ingredients yeah yeah so as we've talked about on our podcast so many times wine scores still matter even though they're a little bit less centralized than they used to be we're curious does your AI model predicts a type of critic scores that these wines may achieve based on the parameters that they're putting in there. We can. is predictable. I will say it is not as predictable as consumers. There are certain latent variables that we're not measuring that make it less predictable. Like there are influences on the wine critic that have nothing to do with the chemistry of the wine. And I mean, we're just, we're very interested in what consumers like. And I've seen negative correlations between critic scores and consumer scores in some cases. Not saying that happens all the time, but short answer is yes, we can predict. <laughs> to a lesser extent, we can predict critic scores. Yeah. Less than 93. <laughs> yes, less than 90. And it depends on the critic. Like some critics are very predictable. Some are not so predictable. So, <laughs> yeah. There was a company called Analogics that sort of was taking chemistry data from the wines and trying to then predict critic scores and things like that and helping winemakers adjust their wines to get higher scores. How is what you're doing different from that? Yeah, so we do one fraction of what we do is we do look at phenolics and we do quantify that and give visibility to winemakers on our platform. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure, but I know that Enologics was focused on optimizing blends to an analog, which was making wines that critics would consider good representations of varietal or terroir, right? And at Tastry, we kind of just skip that analog and we focus on what consumers like. And like I said, I think they were just looking at phenolics because there was a perceived correlation between the ratios of those phenolics and the critic score. We do that, but we also, we look at phenolics, but we also look at a much bigger picture of the wine, right? We think there's things that are important that are not phenolics, like like certain aromatics and, you know, like pyrazines and esters and all the other stuff going on in the wine is predictive of how much consumers, not just critics, would like it. Yeah, a lot of winemakers still use that phenolic ratio <laughs> to uh, mm -hmm. guide their yeah. quality approach. You mentioned that you create recipes or guidance for the winemakers. Does this extend to its footprint within the walls of the winery or does it extend out into the vineyard as well? We are getting a lot of pressure to understand what's going on in the vineyard to help decisions there, but it's just an R&D right now. We don't have a commercialized product or anything like that. And to your, your other comment, yes, I know um, a lot of those winemakers are our clients. 
I don't think Enologics is like they still around. I don't. I thought they pivoted to spirits, but I yeah, because it was like too hard to be some wine. kind of sustainable thing or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. So just curious, like in terms of scale, like how many wineries slash winemakers use Tastry to help with winemaking? I would say a non-trivial number. A ballpark? You know, over 100. But if you're talking by volume, a large percentage. We do have an initiative, I won't foreshadow, that will allow us to onboard many, many, many more wineries that will be announced earlier this year. I'll give you a heads up, but as of today, we work with 22 of the top 25, 30 of the top 100, and I have to double check because I'm not sales anymore, but over 100. So I'm assuming you're going to be opening some kind of like large language bottle that you can they can prompt your data set with? No, I would just say like the more we work in the wine industry, right, that we work very closely with winemakers. We built the product around their opinions. Um, the more we iterate the product, the more available Tastry becomes to the smaller producers in the wine market. So on the sales and marketing side for wineries, you're matching the chemical profiles of their wines with your database of consumer palates. How does a sales and marketing person within a winery work with Tastry? One big way is even though they're buying the same data, the winemakers, they're more interested in looking at finished wines and they're using it to understand their competitive set. So one thing that we do really well is we show consumers in terms of circle, right? The bigger the circle, the more consumers would like this wine this much, right? And so we'll say, okay, here's the circle for your wine. Here's how many consumers like your wine. You know, you're trying to understand your competitor. Here's their circle. Here's the overlap, of consumers that like both your and your competitors' wine. So what they'll do is they'll try to understand, okay, am I actually competing against this label on the shelf? Because if I went for that market share, I'm only capturing, only 15% of consumers would like my wine that like my competitors. Who's actually my competitor? It's the one that ha- where the circles are on top of each other. It's the one where consumers would like both my wine and my competitors' wine. And they might not even taste the same, right? Like right now, everyone's like, oh, you know, I'm competing against Rombauer, I need to make a buttery Chardonnay. But what if I told you, like, there's a Pinot that Rombauer Chardonnay drinkers really like, and that's a market of opportunity for you, right? It's a very different way of looking at things. It's all about the angle of what the consumer wants, as opposed to like the style of the wine, even though we do look at that. What about in terms of predicting messaging that will resonate with those consumers in terms of like sales and marketing? It's like, say I have this wine, like what I would assume that a sales and marketing person would be interested in like, hey, could you give me copy that would help me articulate why this one would resonate with them? They are. We've done a few tests with that, but I would say like Tastry is really, really good at predicting how much consumers are going to like the taste of something. And yes, of course, there are other very important variables like marketing and the label and things like that. It's in the works, but we're just, it's just kind of like a couple off dashboard projects that we have going on. And if you're getting people's peer groups and all that, and that's what a lot of sales and marketing people are interested in, how do you get the data for the competitors' wines? Do they have to send you all the wines? Yeah, no. So you could think of that piece of tastry as kind of like the IRI of like taste profile. So every year, the top 2,000 wines on Nielsen and IRI, we analyze at our own cost because if we pay to analyze the wine, then we own that data. Every client at Tastry, when they send us wine, that is their proprietary data. They own that. We cannot do anything with that or use it or resell it or do anything with it, right? Like that is absolutely theirs, right? When we buy the top 2,000 wines, then we could 
use it as the backdrop for our software for you to understand market trends like in aggregate, right? And everyone was requesting visibility on the top, whatever, 1,000 lines. So often I was just, we were sick and tired of analyzing, you know, a hundred of the same bottle of wine every month. And for the top 2,000, is that just by sales volume, like a IRI ranking? How do you determine what the top 2,000 is? Yes, just the way it's conventionally understood, just because that's where we get the most questions and interest from our clients. Yeah, Because I could imagine a world where I work with a lot of higher-end wineries that might want the top-rated wines or the most searched-for wines on Wine Searcher or something like that. You know, Those would be a lot more expensive for you to buy but <laughs> and access. That's so true, so true. <laughs> Does Tastry work better for any particular sales channel for sales and marketing people, like whether that's direct-to-consumer or on-premise or off-premise? I don't want to say better. I mean, it works for all of those things. Really, we're just we're selling this Tastry plugin, the ability to have the intelligence of a system that can provide personalized recommendations for whatever inventory you are looking at. So it could be a very small inventory, right, that will rank order the wines from your tiny wine club, or it could be the entire Sam's Club assortment, right? It just, it totally depends. It's configurable that way. I would assume building a profile for restaurants slash wine bars would be a whole different kind of like subset of like like what they're looking for in terms of what would meet their needs. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely, I feel like, well, it depends on how big the restaurant is, but they are more inclined to work with a more unique brand because it is kind of about the story and the vineyard and what happened that year with that vintage, right? It's like in a grocery store, you don't have anyone explaining that to you. You just kind of want to grab something that tastes good. So yeah, it is, it is like a bit of a different buying behavior, different things you're looking at. And so in terms of like sales and marketing focus, what are some examples where the wineries have gotten great returns in working with Tastry to help with sales and marketing? Yeah. So a little while back, I mentioned the switching from Cooperage to staves while maintaining the flavor profile of the wine, maintaining year-over-year consistency, even though you're dealing with inconsistent materials and fruit every year. That ROI is quantified in terms of man hours, in terms of money spent and on R&D, right? The $10 million of fruit, right? That would have been a $10 million loss if it were not ameliorated within 48 hours. Typically, like a CompuBlend will just save 70 to 100 hours of painstaking iterations, and we just get to a more desirable point faster and let the winemaker take it from there. So there's a labor. And it totally depends on the chemistry, but There's a lot of examples where we would identify, hey, you don't need to add this extra $250,000 of oak into this batch of wine because it's not going to affect the odor activity value. Adding more oak isn't going to help consumers perceive that there's more oak in this. And by the way, it's not going to make the wine better. Consumers are not going to like it better with this additional $250,000 of oak. So leave it alone and save the money, right? There's examples like that. Does that mean you have profiles of different Coopers as well, and their different products. That's exactly right. Yeah, we analyze all sorts of ingredients and additives that a winemaker, all the tools at their disposal, and they could select which of those providers or additives they would like to be considered in the blend. So it's so specific for like, it could be the difference between a Terenso three-year age stay versus four or five-year age. We do have a process for making sure that the product is consistent. We do favor more consistent providers. 
I'd have to check if it's that granular, but we have a lot of popular products on there is what I would say. So yeah, so Cooper type and duration is the recommendation and even toast level are things that you would kind of like be recommending? We would just say this particular product has this particular toast level and this is the the name and description of the product. This is what the AI recommends. It's going to give you the best outcome if you use this much of it in your blend. I'm not saying it needs to be medium toast. It totally depends if that kind of makes sense. Another area is that you guys work with retailers as well, right? To help sell their wine. How does that work? You mentioned the mini quiz before for consumers. Is that something that the retailer themselves are offering up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So look, it doesn't matter who you are. When you're on the Tastery platform, you're either using it to understand what consumers want and recommend wine, right? So retailers can absolutely be a client and purchase this powered by Tastery recommender to engage with their clients and then understand what their clients want and if their assortment is suited for what the customers want. Or you could be an e-retailer. We have quite a few e-retailers. Everyone has the same goal. They're just using it differently. And so if I'm a retailer and I use this to get my wine club or consumers to put their profiles in, do I own that data or does that go into the larger data pool or accommodation? Yeah, so we definitely, we don't touch any PII, like no identifiable customer information, right? Like no names or, you know, like contact information or anything like that. We don't get access to that. We don't want access or the responsibility of that. All we're interested in and all we own is the palette ID data. So when someone, a unique user gets a recommendation, their palette gets captured and put into our cloud. So just make your data set bigger. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly right. Okay. And have you seen a prevalent in terms of your retail customers using it? Are you seeing more e-retailers, online retailers, or more in-store retailers that use this? Well, right now we have a bit more traction with e-retailers, and I think that's just a consequence of COVID. And when we launched, people were still very concerned with COVID. Am I allowed to say COVID on a podcast? Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Cool. Retailers have hundreds, if not thousands, of SKUs that are in their offering or on their shelves. Does that mean they have to send all those wines to you, especially the one if they're not in the top 2,000 wines? Oh, my gosh. I really wish we had had this interview like in December because I have a really good answer for that. There's a bit of a I would love to I would I would love to come back and answer that question with actual concrete announcements and and things that are going on at Tastry. But it's very exciting. Yes, there is a scalable way to obtain that data for everyone. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Well we'll put that as a TBD working. Okay. And how many retailers do you work with today? Thinking individual companies. It's a handful. It's a handful, mostly e-retailers. And we, I am not allowed to say, I'm sorry, have completed some very successful pilots with big box chains. But since we have not done the full rollout, I'm not allowed to say or announce it yet. But I can provide you a list of who we work with and whose websites we're on. I'm sure listeners who are retailers as many people in the wine industry are, they like to follow other people. So if they see a lot of people using it, then they feel more confidence in it. And I don't think that's just in wine and many things. But so what is the business model for a taste trade? How do you actually make money? Yeah, so sorry if this is too much, but we're a B2B vertical SaaS with um, largely a consumption-based SaaS model. So we make money in a few ways. So one is you subscribe to the dashboard like you would at Nielsen or IRI. Not that expensive, but 
right? You buy the tastry dashboard. The other way is through analysis. So I mentioned we have a certified lab based in the central coast and our clients will send us samples. So we charge for that. And how many samples you send determines how big of a client you are with tastry, what you're trying to accomplish there. And a sample could be a tank sample, a finished wine. It could be an oak soak. It doesn't really matter. A sample is a sample. And it's priced that way. And then you could also buy competitive data sets. So like to fill in the backdrop of your tastry dashboard, do you want to look at the top 2,000 wines, the top 50 wines? Do you want to look at the top Pinot Noirs in Oregon? You know, what kind of data are you looking to use? And then the third component is it's called CompuBlend or computational blending. And we charge every time you want to run a simulation and direct the AI to solve a problem for you. That costs money on the dashboard. For submitting a wine for analysis, how does the pricing compare to a normal lab like an ETS or someone else? We provide, it's like, I don't want to say something wrong, but it's about a tenth of the cost. So we will provide almost $3,000 in panels on the dashboard right now. Our list price right now is $370 for that. Okay, because it's kind of like taking every single thing ETS ever does and running it once. Exactly. normally an ETS panel is, you know, $40, $50, $100, depending on what you're doing. But this is like all their things. Yes. And it's just, it's a side effect of the chemistry. And our goal wasn't initially to provide that, but winemakers wanted to kind of like dig in and figure out why this was doing what. So we just kind of, and they were like, hey, I'm already paying for this. Can I just like look at your oak panels? And we're like, sure. So we just started offering it. And is the pricing or model different for like winery sales and marketing people or for the retailers that we talked about? No, it doesn't matter who you are. Sales, marketing, winery, retailer, that's the pricing. It's all the same pricing. Just like I said, like a sales and marketing person's more interested in looking at competitive sets, right? And a retailer is more interested in having finished wines to provide recommendations. So totally depends. Yeah. So how do customers think about the return on investment of using Tastry. Yeah. So I want to preface this with real AI companies that have been successful in integrating into the workflow of organizations have proven to provide tremendous ROI. And right now, our ROI per client ranges anywhere from 44 to 215x ROI. I haven't seen an ROI that was less than 30x at this point. So tremendous. I mean, I think that's why we were able to get the trust of a non-trivial portion of the wine industry. It's like, you know, it's one thing to talk about this, but we actually went in there and we solved real problems in the industry. And that's pretty easy to prove. And the top line of that 44 to 215 X, is that primarily in like cost savings for developing the wine? Or does that also include the increased revenue from selling a better product and matching it with consumer taste preferences? It does include increased revenue. We have more than several use cases where we have increased revenue just through the sheer business intelligence. Like just the first thing that's coming to my head is we had a winemaker that was battling with sales and marketing and they were saying, hey, your wine's not selling. And he said, hey, it's underpriced. Like it's not competing with the right wines on the shelf. The consumers who would pay this much for the wine are not going to like it. And our data confirmed that. We're like, yes, this wine is dramatically underpriced. So before Tastry, they had like a three-year battle about this. And they finally changed the price and the wine made, was like over $300,000 or something the first 
six months since the price change. And so what's been your longest customer relationship and how has Tastry transformed our business? Yeah, we do have some early adopters. If you go on, sorry for the shameless plug, but if you go on Tastry.com, we have, you know, a winemaker advisory board where winemakers have lent us their name and we have given them credit for being a part of the development of the Tastry dashboard. So we have a winemaker advisory board and those guys were part of Tastry before Tastry launched. And what we did is we made sure that we built the dashboard first and foremost for winemakers by winemakers kind of thing. So we were doing little projects with them before it was even a product kind of thing. So I don't know, more than three years, if I answer your question. Cool. So according to Crunchbase, Tastry's raised over $10 million in VC funding from RevTech Ventures and Half Court Ventures. How does being venture-backed company work while being in this like notoriously slow wine industry? Because there's often a lot of pressure for VC-backed companies to grow, 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 and fail fast if they need to. But how has that challenge been for you? Yes, actually, fortunately for us, we are very, very light on institutional investors. You know, we have people who are investors who are part of funds, and we have some earlier stage funds, but we're not backed by like a massive VC or anything like that. And, you know, part of that is intentional. This isn't really a super popular, other than the AI, like the wine industry and the alcoholic space isn't really well understood by VCs. And most of the people that we're working with who are are really major investors are people who do understand this industry. And we do have prominent investors who understand AI, but they're not like controlling the company or anything like that, right? They're just part of tastery because they see that the AI is legit. So I'm not aiming to be one of those venture funded companies until a later stage. The wine industry moves at a certain pace and in a certain way. And, you know, I know venture funding, I could have taken in a lot more money, but if you have venture funding at the wrong time, it could kill the company for the dumbest reasons, or it could make the company grow really fast and do really well, but we're just not there yet. So I'm curious in terms of aspirations, because obviously usually venture capital comes with multiples that are in their dreams. So I'm curious on what you think the total addressable market is for the space that you're doing, and are you seeing any kind of competitors enter this space? It is a massive, massive opportunity. You know, the wine and alcoholic beverage industry is not small, and our ability to have created an ecosystem in this industry, I would say a lot of our investors are impressed by that. And now it's all about figuring out how do you deliver more value and extract more value from this ecosystem. And we can only extract value if we deliver value. And we're doing a very good job at that. So I would just say it's, right now it's all about taking the success that we've had and replicating that success. And again, massive, definitely VC fundable from a TAM perspective. Where it bottom up, top down, however you want to look at it. And then, you know, I've always wanted to be able to answer the question, like, do you have competitors? And there are people that, like companies that we can be like confused for or misunderstood for. But every time I look into it, I'm like, well, it's kind of like trying to do this, but not quite this way. And this isn't the way we would go about it. And their clients are our clients. So I would say we have like a lot of adjacent competitors, but no one I would really like, want to mention and go on a podcast with and say like, hey, we're better than them this way or, you know, I don't have a direct competitor. No one um, you'd want to be on an AI panel about the wine industry with in the future. Oh, <laughs> no, I will definitely, I will talk about AI. Definitely Tastry has the chops to talk AI with innovative companies just in the AI space. I don't think the wine companies the wine specific have, part of it, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they have the chops to talk about real AI 
or real data. And how have your investors been supportive or enabled your growth? I mean, is it all strategic investors or just mainly financial? I would say very strategically beneficial investors. A lot of our investors are very prominent and prolific in the wine industry or the AI or retail industry, and they all provide different insights and benefits. And often software companies do have to burn through cash to grow and and get there over time. Do you see yourself needing to raise a lot more capital over the coming years? Or how do you think about that growth? No, we are not short on runway. We're a much more stable company now, even compared to a couple of years ago. So any investment discussion we're having now or planning to in the future is all about, okay, how do I grow this business? How do I move into other verticals like spirits or RTDs or position this as a sensory science company, right? It's all about how will more resources make this a better company faster, which is good. I mean, that's a really big milestone to hit. So we're proud of that. You're definitely trying to bring big data and AI to the wine industry, which is no small feat. And I'm curious, like, Obviously, a lot of entrepreneurs as they started up their companies have had to pivot and avoid or have major learnings. I was curious if you could cover some of the experiences you've had along the way that have helped shape the company to be the way it is today. Like, or has this always been the vision and you've just been able to uh, like execute against it? Look, it's a really big vision and there's a very long ramp up, right? Like I mentioned, it took us four years and millions and millions of dollars before we even launched a single product. And that required a lot of faith from a lot of people. I think what we did right is we had conversations very early on with people in the wine industry and we wanted to make sure that we were building something that they were going to use and something that was going to matter to them. And it wasn't like I was like, right, like we're making very big statements now, like we're using AI and computers to work with winemakers to make wine, right? Like it took a lot of effort and understanding of what people actually want to be able to comfortably make that statement and to be able to provide that technology, right? Like there's a million ways you can do that. We wanted to present the technology and information in a way that was going to be valuable to people and not just for the sake of being a cool technology company. Like there's an application here and that figuring out the application and the appropriate application was way more challenging than building the core technology. So what are you most excited about for the next year at Tastry? You've already gave some hints around what some of the things are, but. I would say what we're excited about is now that we have non-trivial traction on, I'm foreshadowing a little bit, on both sides of the supply chain. We are getting this flywheel effect of value where we're becoming more valuable to, you know, wineries because we have traction in retail and retailers because we have wineries on board. And we're kind of starting to multiply the value for everyone involved in this ecosystem. And I think what you're going to see more of is how we're facilitating national brand exposure and intelligent distribution. How do you get the right product in front of the right customers? and reduce waste in the supply chain. Awesome. Wow, we covered a lot of topics. I mean, I feel like we (laughs) keep talking, but uh, so, you know, we like to wrap up every episode on a personal note. And for you, we'd love to know what was the most memorable wine you've drank in the last year and who did you drink it with? Yeah, so it was with my business partner, Charles. And so we're up in the Bay Area a lot. And we were in San Carlos um, recently at a place called Tamari. It's a Georgian restaurant. And They have a very impressive Georgian wine list. And Georgian wine is actually pretty amazing. It's one of the oldest regions in the world. And I had like a gold medal Saparavi. It was like a Chelti estate Saparavi 2015. And I've just recently been grabbing it. And um, 
playing a game to see how many people could guess <laughs> that's what it is because it's so good, but not many people would guess it's Georgian. So I've been doing that lately. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for sharing. I'm sure we'll have some follow-ups as we get through December to talk about some of the other topics that we alluded to earlier. It'd be great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you so much for taking so much time to hear our story. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of Egg Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.